I do uh, praise the Lord uh, for a wonderful time. Um, our family went on Thursday uh, to pick up our oldest daughter uh, from college in Ohio. And uh, the Lord watched over us as we drove. And um, as Esther took turns driving, uh, I was able to work on this passage that we're going to look at together this morning. I praise the Lord for the technology to be able uh, to work on that on the road. And uh, we had a wonderful dinner on Thursday night uh, with some of Carice's friends um, there at college. And it was good to see uh, who uh, she has been fellowshipping with and to get to know them better and to hear of God's work in their lives. And then that evening, uh, there was a family in Carice's church uh, who opened their home to us. Uh, so we were able to, all, all 10 of us, were able to, to spend the night there, enjoyed that hospitality from brothers and sisters, uh, a brother and sister in the Lord, and then I came back on Friday. Well, I've been studying this passage, and it is the first passage uh, that really comes to the, the, the meat of the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, what we have been seeing so far is by way of introduction, as Paul has identified who, who he is, that he is writing as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's identified who he's writing to. He's writing to the church of God in Corinth. And he praises the Lord. He gives thanks uh, for the Corinthian believers and for what the Lord has done for them, which is what he has done for every believer, including that the Corinthians have been sanctified by God. That is, when we first believed in Christ, God set us apart from sin, from the world, unto himself for his service. Uh, in being set apart from sin, uh, we were saved from the power of sin and the, the, the dominion that sin once had over our lives. Uh, when we were sanctified, we were set apart unto the Lord's service. And Paul thanks the Lord for what he has done in enriching the Corinthians that they might now serve the Lord faithfully. He says that they have been enriched in all, in all, all, all speech and so forth. That they have been given every spiritual gift. That as a church they have received all the gifts that they need in order to, as a church, faithfully serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have seen wonderful truths that did not just pertain to the Corinthian believers, but that pertain to, to every true church, that pertain to every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul began with the perfect position uh, that the Corinthian believers had in Christ before he gets into addressing the problems in the church, before he begins addressing the concerns that he has about how the church has been living. And now in our text, Paul begins to get into the, the concerns. There are many concerns that he will voice in this epistle, but before so, he puts that great weight on our perfect position in Christ, that we might know that in Christ, we have the grace to live out the instructions that the Apostle Paul gives to the Corinthian church and in turn to every church of God. I'm going to read to us verses 10 through 17. If you are able, please stand in honor of the word of God. Verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you, except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, 
and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. This passage begins a large section of Corinthians that will go through the end of chapter 4. In this section, the Apostle Paul rebukes a serious problem in the church that he brings up in our text that I will call party spirit. He rebukes this in verse 12 when he says, What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. This is party spirit, which is the division of the church into different rival parties, each flocking around and exalting a different church leader. This wasn't just a problem in the Corinthian church, but can also be a serious problem in our churches today. There are two contrasts that Paul makes in our texts. The first contrast is church unity instructed and party spirit rebuked. Church unity instructed and party spirit rebuked. First of all, see church unity instructed in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Paul here appeals to the Christian brothers in Corinth, quote, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he's appealing to them by our Lord's authority. Paul is conveying the authoritative instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ to the Corinthian church. Paul appeals to his brothers that all of you agree. Literally, that all of you say the same thing. That the speech of all the members of the church would reflect the mindset that is taught in Scripture. This unity is not a mindless unity in which we become clones of one another. Rather, this unity is like 100 pianos in the same room that all play the same pitch because they have been tuned to the same tuning fork. That tuning fork is the Word of God. This agreement between the members of the church stems from holding to the same doctrine. It stems from the mindset of each believer being informed by that doctrine to which we hold. This unity does not mean having identical perspectives, identical opinions, or identical convictions. But it does mean having harmony within the church in our speech. Paul goes on, And that there be no divisions among you. He appeals to them that there be no divisions among them. This word divisions in the original language, Greek, means the condition of being divided because of conflicting aims or objectives. The condition of being divided because of conflicting aims or objectives. And the word can be translated by the English words divisions, or dissensions, or schisms. Paul appeals to them by the authority of Christ that there be no divisions, no dissensions, no schisms among them. And in verses 11 through 13, Paul will rebuke the divisions that were at that point, in the Corinthian church. But before he gets there, he goes on and he continues to appeal to them. He says, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So rather than there being divisions among you, instead, you are to be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Or as the Net Bible puts it, the same mind and purpose. Now, this being united in the same mind and the same judgment or purpose goes hand in hand with what we just saw earlier in the verse about agreeing with one another. Now, understand that this verse is not instructing the church to create unity. Our unity as a church is created by God through the gospel as God has acted through Christ to reconcile us to himself and to, by his grace, bring us into one body, the body of Christ, 
causing us to be born again, giving us a new heart, a new nature, bringing us, uh, saving us out of our rebellion against God, bringing us into submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, as we have been brought into one body that has one Lord, God has created our unity. We can't create unity. God creates that in the, through the gospel, by his grace in the church. What our verse is instructing us to do is to live out the unity into which God has brought us through his Son. We're to maintain that unity. We're to preserve that unity. We're to live out the unity that we have in Christ. Now, why does Paul exhort the church of God in Corinth along these lines? It's because they have been doing just the opposite, as we will see in the next section, in which party spirit is rebuked. Party spirit rebuked. Look at verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Chloe's people may refer to the household of someone named Chloe, uh, who may have been a member of the church. Uh, These people were in the Corinthian church, and they reported to Paul that there was quarreling in the church. Now understand, this is not a good thing to have this quarreling in the church. Paul lists this very thing of quarreling in Romans 1.29, when he gives examples of the transgressions of pagans. The ESV translates the same word in Romans one twenty nine with the word strife. Listen to Romans one thirty two. After listing these various transgressions of pagans, including strife or quarreling, he says in Romans one thirty two, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So quarreling is an example given by the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 of transgressions against the Holy God. Quarreling along with all other transgressions brings the wrath and judgment of God. And it's something that as believers we are to put off. We are to repent of. We are not to continue in. Paul lists the same word again in Galatians 5.20 as one of the works of the flesh. In Galatians 5.20, it's translated again with the word strife, as it is in Romans 1.29, but it's the same Greek word translated quarreling in our text. There in Galatians 5, verses 20 and 21, you have this list that Paul gives, a representative list of the works of the flesh, including quarreling. And he says there in Galatians 5.21, I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So in our text, when Paul says, it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, this is not something that can be tolerated. It's not something that can be excused. No, 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 this is something that is offensive to God, that must be dealt with. Now, what kind of quarreling was in the Corinthian church? Look at verse 12. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. The 1995 edition of the New American Standard is more literal here. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. I am of Christ. The SV tries to give us the sense of that. I follow Paul. I follow Cephas. But literally, it's I am of Paul. I am of Cephas. I am of Apollos. I am of Christ. Now, what was happening here was so widespread in the church that Paul says in our ver- in verse twelve, each one of you says these things. It was widespread. It wasn't just a small group of people in the church that had this issue. Now, some in the church were saying, I follow Paul, or I am of Paul. We learn from the book of Acts how Paul had led a small group of missionaries uh, in planting this church in Corinth, uh, somewhere between three to five years uh, before he writes this 
epistle. Paul was there. He was part of the founding of this church as he came to this this great city and he preached the gospel there, possibly for the first time in, in history. And sinners were saved as they heard the gospel of Christ. They were redeemed. Uh, They received forgiveness of their sins through the blood of Jesus. Uh, They were made new in in Christ and a church was formed. The Apostle Paul led that church for its first 18 or more months of life, according to Acts chapter 18. So the first members of this church had been saved not too long before Paul writes this under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Now we read in our text that others in the church were saying, I follow Apollos. And we learn about Apollos in Acts chapter 18 as well. How Luke records there how Paul met this man Apollos shortly after Paul left Corinth. Apollos, we read in Acts 18, was Jewish. He was a native of Alexandria, Egypt, which was a place of higher learning. They had probably the largest library in the Roman Empire. Apollos was eloquent, he was competent in the scriptures, he was fervent in spirit. Luke tells us all of those things about Apollos. And Luke records how he was sent from the Ephesian church to the Corinthian church not long after Paul departed from the church in Corinth. So Apollos followed the apostle Paul as the next well-known preacher in the Corinthian church. He wasn't someone who who was originally from Corinth. He came from the outside to the church as someone who was already gifted in ministry in order to to, to preach and and evangelize and to help lead the church in Corinth. Acts 18, verse 27 through 28 says, When Apollos arrived in Corinth, He greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Apollos, by God's design, had a different style than the Apostle Paul. People were saved and grew under his ministry, just as had happened under Paul's ministry. Still others in the church were saying, I follow Cephas. Cephas is another name for the Apostle Peter. Remember, Jesus gave him the name Peter. He's also called Cephas, as he is here. People said, I follow Cephas. Which would suggest to us, we're not told this in Scripture, but it would suggest to us that Peter also spent some time ministering in Corinth during the early years of that church. Finally, others in the church were saying, I follow Christ. Though all of us should be followers of Christ, this party in the Corinthian church was not saying this in the right spirit. Paul speaks negatively of their statement, I follow Christ, or I am of Christ. This party appears to have downplayed the importance of teachers in the church. Well, what exactly was happening in Corinth? Paul has called it quarreling in verse 11. We learn more in the rest of this section that runs through chapter 4. I want you to go go forward to chapter 3. Chapter 3. Verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1, Paul writes, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? He's saying that in a negative way. He's rebuking them. You're not being spiritual here. You're not following the spirit. You're following the flesh. When one says, I follow Paul, and another, Another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. 
He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. We see here in these verses that I just read that these parties within the Corinthian church were wrongly exalting these different church leaders. Some were exalting Paul, others exalting Apollos, others exalting Cephas. Let's go on to verse 21. Verse 21. So let no one boast in men. That's what they were doing. They were boasting in Paul, boasting in Cephas, boasting in Apollos. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. Don't boast in men. Paul is only a servant. Apollos is only a servant. Boast in God who gives the growth. Chapter, chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 6. Chapter 4, verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? We see that the members of the different parties were puffed up and boastful as they compared themselves to others in the church. And so putting this all together, we see that the quarreling was a matter of each member wrongly exalting their favored church leader and doing so in order to exalt, in order to exalt themselves for aligning with or being connected with that exalted leader. Paul is certainly not flattered here by the party that says, I follow Paul. He rebukes them for it. In in these matters, the Corinthian church was acting just like the world. The Corinthians were used to hearing professional speakers on the city streets. These speakers were very eloquent, And they made their livings by giving speeches and teaching classes. Passers-by would latch on to the public speakers that they most enjoyed and would become committed to championing that speaker's cause publicly. Additionally, there was a tendency to exalt religious teachers to the status of men possessing divine qualities. And the new believers in Corinth brought these sorts of things into the church. They were comparing the church's leaders using worldly standards and then boasting about their connection with the leader whom they viewed as superior. Or they would boast that they didn't do this, but they just followed Christ, making themselves just as puffed up as the others. This is why Paul, in chapters 1-4, through will contrast the wisdom that is attractive to the world and the folly of the gospel message, the message of the cross. He will be showing how worldly the Corinthians are and how they judge one Christian teacher to be superior to another. There was no doctrinal disagreement between Paul, Apollos, and Cephas. There was no significant difference in faithfulness between Paul and Apollos and Cephas. The differences were matters of personality, education, and style. But the Corinthians who were enamored with the the outward, they were exalting one teacher and neglecting the teaching of others. Or they were boasting in their connection with one of these outside teachers who had come to Corinth, boasting in their connection with that teacher in order to get their way in the church. The inevitable result of such party spirit is quarreling, wrangling, Contention and division. You can hear the Corinthians appealing to their connection with Paul or Apollos or Cephas to try to get their way in a conflict. One believer says, you should listen to me because I am of the Apostle Paul. Another brother says, no, you should listen to me because I am of Apollos. Another says, no, you should listen to me because I am of Peter, one of the original apostles. Others who don't have a connection with one of these teachers who 
came to Corinth from the outside, say, no, you should listen to me because I am of Christ. The Apostle Paul rebukes all of this in verse 13. Look at what he says in chapter 1, verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? The first question is, is Christ divided? The church is to be Christ's reflection. A church divided into rival parties implies that Christ is divided. Christ is not divided, and therefore his church should not be divided. The second question, was Paul crucified for you? The Paul faction boasted in him as if he were their savior. Though some were saved through Paul's preaching of the gospel, it was the one who was crucified for them whom they were to exalt, not the messenger. Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? In the book of Acts, believers were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. In the Great Commission, Christ instructed that we are to baptize Christ's disciples in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Never in the Bible is a person baptized in the name of a mere human being. To be baptized in the name of Christ is to publicly profess in baptism that you have turned over your highest allegiance to Christ. And yet the way that the Corinthians exalted mere men made it sound like they had given their allegiance to Paul or they'd given their allegiance to to Apollos or to Cephas. These three rhetorical questions are stinging rebukes. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? They know the answer is no. Paul is saying that's exactly what you're communicating with this quarreling, with this, I am of this leader, I am of this leader, I am of this leader. This is the implication of what you are saying. John MacArthur, in his commentary, writes, It is natural to have special affection for the person who led us to Christ, for a pastor who has fed us from the Word for many years, for a capable Sunday school teacher, or for an elder or deacon who has counseled and consoled us. But such affection becomes misguided and carnal when it is allowed to segregate us from others in the church or to decrease our loyalty to the other leaders. It then becomes a self-centered, self-willed exclusiveness that is the antithesis of unity. It was not only the Corinthian church that was susceptible to the sin that Paul rebukes here. Our churches today are just as susceptible. We are prone to exalt a leader in our own church or or a well-known leader in the church at large and to form a faction in our local church that exalts that man. Within Within a church, we may have some who say, I follow MacArthur, or I follow Piper, or I follow Sproul. We're prone to allow ourselves to become enamored with one preacher's passion, or one preacher's education, or his preaching skills, or with the man himself because of how the Lord used him in our life. Instead of being enamored with the God whom he preaches, we are now being enamored with the human instrument. Understand, brothers, that no human leader in the church, no matter how gifted, no matter how effective, should have the loyalty that belongs only to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not to base our church attendance on the person who is preaching or teaching. We're not to be comparing our teachers to one another. We're not to think ourselves superior to others in our church because of the teacher to whom we are loyal. If you are doing the sort of thing that the Corinthians were doing, this passage rebukes you. Is Christ divided? Was the teacher whom you have exalted crucified for you? Were you baptized in his name? It's a rebuke. That's the first contrast. We're instructed in church unity and party spirit is rebuked. The second contrast comes in the second half of the text. 
In this contrast, we see who is not to be made much of and what is to be made much of. First of all, who is not to be made much of, and that is the person who baptized us. We see that in verses 14 through 16. Look closely at verse 14. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Now this should not surprise us that the Apostle Paul baptized so few of the converts in Corinth. Because if you go back to John chapter 4, verse 2, you read that Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. Think about it. During Jesus' ministry, to have been personally baptized by Jesus would have brought strong temptation to be proud. Most people were not, would not have been personally baptized by Jesus, but if some were, that would give you reason for pride. And that if Jesus had personally baptized some, that would have tended to set such people apart from Christ's other disciples. Jesus didn't baptize any, anyone personally. Only Christ's disciples baptized. And the Apostle Paul generally approached this in the same way. Paul tells us that in Corinth, he did baptize a few of the early converts. He said that he baptized Crispus. Acts chapter 18, verse 8, speaks of the conversion of Crispus very early on in Paul's ministry there in Corinth. We read in Acts 18, 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. It was to the synagogue that Paul first went in Corinth with the gospel. The majority of that synagogue rejected him. But the ruler of that synagogue, Crispus, he believed in the Lord together with his entire household. Paul also says in our text that he baptized Gaius. And and Gaius is mentioned in Romans chapter 16, verse 23. Look at Romans 16, 23. Paul writes Romans from the city of Corinth. Sometime after he wrote 1 Corinthians, he writes, Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. So, when Paul writes Romans, this man Gaius, uh, he was a host for the whole church, suggesting that the whole church would gather for worship in the home of Gaius. And Gaius was a host to the Apostle Paul while he was there in Corinth. It would appear that this Gaius is mentioned in our text when Paul says, I did baptize a few in Corinth, Crispus and Gaius. This would be some of the early converts there. But Paul says that he's thankful that he didn't baptize many more than that. He says, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. In other words, so that no one may boast that they were baptized by Paul, talking as if they were baptized into Paul's name, and forming a faction together with everyone else who seemingly was baptized in Paul's name. Let's go on to verse 16 in our text. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. So after Paul says in verse 14 that he only baptized Crispus and Gaius, he remembers that he did also baptize the household of Stephanus. We we learn more about the household of Stephanus in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 15, in that the conclusion to this letter, when Paul says you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. That's the region, uh, the province in which, of which Corinth was capital. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. The first converts. And Paul says, I did baptize Stephanus. Now when... Paul says here, he baptized the household of Stephanus, is not teaching that Paul baptized infants. Some will assume that there were infants in Stephanus' home and that they were baptized, but our text doesn't say that. In fact, the verse I read in chapter 16, verse 15, indicates just the opposite. Because what I read in 16, 15 says, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. 
The members of his household were converted as the gospel of Christ came forth as Paul entered that city. They were the first converts. The members of this household, they repented of their sins. They believed in Jesus as Lord and Savior. They were saved. They were the first converts. And Paul says in our text, he baptized that household. He baptized that household, not because they were a household. He baptized them because they were converted. Because they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul's point here in our text is that he only personally baptized a few of the converts in Corinth. And that he didn't keep track of who he baptized. He can't tell you exactly who it was. He said, maybe there was a few others. I, I don't really remember. He didn't keep track. Because the person who baptizes us is not to be made much of. Paul understood that baptism was important. It's part of the Great Commission. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all I have commanded you and surely I am with you to the end of the age. Paul understood that baptism was important. And as far as we know, all the converts in Corinth were baptized. Acts 18.8 says that many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Paul instructed new believers to be baptized. But Paul also understood that the person who administers baptism is not important. Whether that was Silas or Timothy or Corinthians who were converted and became leaders in the church. Brothers and sisters, understand from these verses that you are not to make much of the person who baptized you. It would be sinful to exalt that person rather than exalting the Lord Jesus in whose name you were baptized. Now, what is to be made much of? We're not to make much of who baptized us, but there is something that is to be made much of. We see in verse 17, that is the gospel of Christ's cross. Paul explains in our text, look at verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul explains in this verse, why it is that he didn't know for sure whom all he baptized in Corinth. As an apostle of Jesus Christ, he was sent by Christ to authoritatively preach the gospel of Christ, not to personally uh, baptize. Baptism doesn't save anyone. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. It is the gospel of God that is God's power unto salvation. Baptism doesn't save anyone. It is the message of the cross of Christ that is to be made much of. It is the gospel of Christ and of his cross that saves when accompanied by the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul preached the gospel. He heralded it. He proclaimed it. That word gospel means good news. He preached the good news of Christ and his cross. He preached this good news, Paul says in our text, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The city of Corinth was attracted to words of eloquent wisdom. They were attracted to fine rhetoric, fine oratory. They exalted their wisdom. But Paul purposefully avoided using that in his preaching. Let's continue on at verse 18. Paul says in verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, 
Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We will study these verses closely in the the following weeks. But we see here already what Paul means when he says in verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom. That's what orators in Corinth would normally use to get people on their side, to persuade people, to get people's allegiance. They would use these words of eloquent wisdom. Paul says, I've I've not been sent to baptize, I've been sent to preach, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. To have come with words of eloquent wisdom in the ears of the unregenerate would have been to negate the message of the cross. The faithful preaching of the cross, accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit, results in men and women ceasing to put their trust in in any human device. It results in men and women turning from sin and self to the Lord Jesus Christ. It, it, It results in men and women relying solely on God's work in Christ. A reliance on worldly wisdom would lead men to trust in men, the very opposite of what the preaching of the cross is designed to affect in the hearts of those whom God is calling. To be saved, men and women can't have their ears tickled. Rather, they have to be confronted with the cross of Christ. For those who are called by God in His sovereign grace, the message of the, cro- of the cross of Christ is the most wonderful news. Only the work of Christ at the cross has the power to save us from our sin. The message of the cross tells us that we are sinners against a holy God. The message of the cross tells us that we deserve the divine penalty of death for our sin against the Holy God. The word of the cross tells us the wages of sin is death. The the message of the cross tells us that God must judge sin. But God in His grace and His mercy and His love, He sent His own Son to suffer that penalty in the place of sinners. The message of the cross is that Christ, the the, the promised king, has humbled himself. He has suffered what the world saw as the ultimate humiliation, the ultimate shame of being treated as a vile criminal, being put on a, a, a cross, crucified there. If one was going to exalt themselves, they would never go to the cross. It's just the opposite. The the most lowly and vile sinners were put upon a cross. If you saw your the leader of your movement crucified, you'd be ashamed of that leader. He was crucified. What kind of a leader is crucified? But the message of the cross tells us that what Jesus suffered didn't show his weakness. What he suffered showed his grace. Because he suffered there what we deserve. He suffered that as our substitute in our place. And the message of the cross calls upon all people, men, women, boys, and girls, to repent of your sin and to trust in Jesus Christ who was crucified for your sins and who was raised on the third day to trust him as your Savior and to trust him as your Lord. To submit your life in faith to him, to follow him as your King the rest of your days. This is an offensive message. The message that confronts sin it, it exposes our inability to make ourselves right with God. And it shows us that there's one way of salvation. It's, you can't 
go down all these different roads and end up at God. There's one way of salvation to the one, one way to the one true God. It's through the cross of Christ, through faith in him. And one has to humble themselves. They're going to believe this message. If they're going to embrace Christ in repentant faith, requires humbling oneself before the Lord, humbling oneself before Christ. Jesus said that you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you come like a child. A child is, is a picture of utter dependence. We like to exalt ourselves, but the way to God is the way of denying ourselves taking up our cross and following Jesus in faith as Savior and Lord. The way up is the way down. And so Paul didn't, very intentionally, did not come into Corinth using worldly wisdom to turn the Corinthians towards him and his message. He came proclaiming the power of the cross. Worldly wisdom will not save anyone. Only the cross of Christ saves sinners. Only Christ saves sinners through his atoning death. And meanwhile, you have these new believers in Corinth. They brought into the church their worldly mindset. And they're evaluating the different teachers. Paul, Cephas, Apollos. And they're comparing them using worldly standards, worldly wisdom, the things that appeal to the unregenerate. To say, this one is superior to this one. And therefore, I have more of a say than you have because I'm attached to this one. That's carnality. That's fleshliness. That's worldliness. We have nothing to do with it. The Apostle Paul is going to continue to contrast the message of the cross with the wisdom of this world. He's doing so as he continues to address this problem of this party spirit in the church. We have the most wonderful message in the gospel of Christ and his cross. If you know Jesus as your Savior, if you know him as your Savior who died upon the cross for your sins, if you know him as your Savior who was raised for your justification, then you know that you have received in Christ the forgiveness of all of your sins, past, present, and future. You know that in Christ you have received his perfect righteousness, his perfect obedience, His perfect righteousness has been imputed to you by God's grace, received through faith in Him. As a believer in the crucified and risen Christ, you know that you have been adopted by God's grace into His family. That at one time you were alienated from God, but you have been brought into the body of Christ, brought into the fellowship of God, brought into relationship with God through His Son, you know that your body is now a temple of the Holy Spirit. You know that you have received the Holy Spirit, whom Christ sent after he was exalted to the right hand of the Father. You know that you have received the Holy Spirit, that he dwells within you, that he is a earnest, a guarantee of the inheritance that is to come. You know that your right standing with God is not based on anything that you do, and is not maintained by anything that you do, but it's all of the grace of God from beginning to end. And you know that he who began the good work in you will complete it. You know that he will sustain you to the end, blameless on the day of Christ Jesus, because of the grace of God given you in the, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you, as a believer in Christ, you know this gospel message to be the most wonderful message. The Apostle Paul is saying here, what matters is not who baptized you. What matters is the gospel of Christ and his cross. And that is what we must make much of. 
And if we are making much of the gospel of the cross of Christ, then we will live in a united way. That's when we lose sight of the cross of Christ. We lose sight of what Christ has done for us as sinners saved by grace. When we lose sight of this, that we begin to boast in man, to be puffed up over others, and to form this party spirit with quarreling and divisions in the church. Oh, may the gospel of Christ overjoy our hearts. We're going to be studying more about the gospel of Christ in the weeks ahead. I'm looking forward to that. May the gospel of Christ be foremost in our mind. May we not be looking at each other according to worldly standards. May we apply this to our mindset. May we apply this to our interactions with one another unto the glory of our great God and Savior. Let us pray. O Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel of Christ. Lord, we want to boast in the cross. We want to boast in Christ and not in man. As men, we are your servants, nothing more. You are the one who saves us. You are the one who sustains us to the end. You are the one who builds up your church and grows your church. Oh, we pray, Father, that that you would give us opportunity this week to, to speak the gospel of the cross of Christ to others. We pray, Father, that that this would the study that we've done this morning would not just be a mental exercise, not just growing in understanding of what you say, but, oh Lord, may we take to heart what you have said here. We know that Christ is not divided. Lord, we want to reflect Christ as a body. Enable us to do so to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.